0: Have you ever wondered or ever thought about what is the most important verse in Scripture? Ooh. What would be the most important verse in Scripture? Now, obviously it's impossible to say, right? There's probably ones that are popping into your mind right now and you're thinking about what's the most important one. Well, let me ask it to you this way. What's the most important verse to you in Scripture? Now that's answerable, Right? you probably got one, maybe two or three, that are just your touchstones, your anchor points, right, those scriptures. The interesting thing for me is I've had those for a couple of decades now, but they change over time. When we started the effect, the, the key verse that I was always thinking about was Matthew 5.20. Now, who knows what Matthew 5.20 is? Well. It's, unless you exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you will in no way enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, that seems like kind of a strange, negative, and obscure verse to be a key verse for me. But at the time, it was saying everything, especially as we were just getting the effect established, it was saying everything I needed to say, everything I needed to live, basically. Because what Jesus is saying is that unless you exceed the normal legalistic idea of what church, and religion, and spirituality is all about, there is no way that you can experience oneness with your Father. And so much that's what the effect was about, and still is about today. And so that remains a key verse, but it has been supplanted by 1 John 4, 19, which is, (laughs) we love because he first loved us. And I made it the signature in the end of every prayer, because it is so important to remember, when we break into kingdom, if we finally graduate, This legalistic system that is mostly in our minds and in our society and it infects and invades our churches, what is it that we are experiencing? We're experiencing the oneness, the connection, the unity, which is the love. Love is oneness. Love is identification with the beloved. That's what love is. And the only way that we can do that at all is because God has preceded us as 1 John chapter 4 still has says as well God is love God is forgiveness God is redemption and healing salvation everything all good things from above come from God and so because he is that oneness and that connection because he is that love because he created everything in that love and oneness and connection then we can participate What's beautiful about that is that wherever we go, God already is. God always precedes us wherever we go. There's no place we can go that God isn't already because everything is part of that oneness. So that has become our kind of signature verse. But increasingly over the last couple of years, there's been another verse that has really kind of popped its head up and just is sticking with me and informing me more and more about where I'm going, especially at this stage of my life. And that one is Luke twenty-three thirty-four. Everyone know that one? Well, it's in your your handouts there, and I'm sure Brandon already has it up on the screen. Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. Or in the poetry of the King James Version, which is always great, the rhythm and the meter, they know not what they do. Father, forgive them, they know not what they do. Now, this also is not a real romantic verse i suppose but let's get a little backstory here what is where is jesus and what is he doing when he is saying this well he's on the cross of course this is the first of the seven famous sayings of jesus on the cross that are played out across all four gospels and luke is the only gospel that has this particular saying father forgive them they don't know what they're doing You know, as bad as crucifixion is in our minds and as much as Mel Gibson tried to portray it in The Passion of the Christ, it still pales, really, in terms of what crucifixion really was, what Jesus was enduring at the time that he said these words. There are several Roman historians who have kind of outlined and and said in graphic detail what crucifixion was all about in the Roman world. First and foremost, of course, it was a form of execution, but first and foremost, it was a form of public shaming. What the Romans used crucifixion for, and they didn't use it on their own citizens, they only used it on the subjugated peoples within their empire. What it was for was to make sure that whatever was done would never be attempted by anyone ever again. That was the whole idea. They wanted to make such a horrific public display that anybody witnessing that would steer clear of doing anything against this empire. That was the whole point. So, they were scourged, they were beaten, they were humiliated, all in public. And then they were made to carry the crossbeam. They didn't carry the whole cross, they carried the crossbeam, which, when it got to the place of execution, was placed onto a permanently installed upright. And then the victim was stripped naked, completely nude. You know, we have the loincloth around Jesus, kind of the sanitized version, like the statue of David with the fig leaf. Now, there is a pretty lively debate, I found, as to whether Jesus really would have been completely nude or whether he would have had some kind of covering because apparently there is some historical references to Rome acceding to the cultural norms of the different areas in the terms of the way that they carried out these executions. And the Jews were extremely modest by code. They would never show their skin in public. Everything was covered up except of hands and faces, and in the case of women, not even faces. So even for Jesus to be hanging in a loincloth would have been absolutely humiliating. But can you imagine hanging there in the nude? And death by crucifixion is death by asphyxiation, not by the wounds that you receive, because you can't breathe when you're hanging from your arms and leaning forward. You cannot exhale. There's no way to do that. And so you have to pull yourself back. And when you run out of strength to pull yourself back so you can breathe, you're done. But that can take days, especially if they put a footrest under your feet so you had more traction, a way to push up. They're hanging there four days with the people going by, with the jeering and the insults and the spit and everything that would happen to these poor people in this situation. And then after you died, they didn't take you down. They just left you up there for the corpse to rot, to be picked at by birds and and other carrion eaters. And of course, for a Jew, you have to understand how absolutely abominating this is. That's a word I just made up, abominating. It was an abomination. Jews immediately went into the tomb, you know, even before the sunset of that day. That's why it was that mad scramble to get Jesus into the tomb, because he was taken down. But this was crucifixion. So imagine Jesus in the midst of that, hanging there now, being laughed at, jeered at, spat upon. And the first thing that he says is, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. That kind of thought process, that type of just complete disregard for self is incredible. It's incredible when we really stop to think about it. So many of these verses go right past us. But to really stop and think about what Jesus is doing here, it's absolutely incredible. And this is so meaningful to me now at this point. Why is that? Well, first of all, nothing focuses the mind like a deadline, right? A deadline focuses you. And so the last words that somebody says as they're dying are really focused. We tend to lean in. We want to hear them. You've all heard my story of, of Lou, a friend that Marion and I had in a previous church. And when we went to visit him, and we were all, three of us, aware that this was probably the last time that we would speak. So as we were saying our goodbyes, and he grabbed our hands, and he looked into our eyes with intensity. We were paying attention. And he said, love each other. Just love each other. And he waited a beat and kid around a little bit because that's who he was. Last words, a deadline, focusing those words, that's the time to pay attention. What are we paying attention to here with Jesus, with his last words? And the main thing is vulnerability, isn't it? It's absolute vulnerability. His willingness to remain undefended, open, compassionate, to a degree that is absolutely incredible under the circumstances that we're trying to review here, what we're understanding. I think there's an article that I found that I thought this, uh, this woman did a great job. And in case you're wondering, she is a Baptist pastor. So let it never be said that... A Baptist pastor has not been quoted here at the effect. I just wanted to make that perfectly clear. Her name is Linda, and she writes, And amidst the peals of laughter and the mocking and the jeering as he writhes in pain, Jesus, enemy of church and state, lifts his eyes to the heaven and offers up a prayer. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Seriously? From where does a thought like that even emanate? I mean... I get the deafening silence during the trial when Jesus is being asked over and over, are you the Son of God? Are you the King of the Jews? And we as the readers want more than anything for Jesus to stick up for himself. Say something, Jesus. Tell them who you are. Show them your power. Do a miracle. At least tell a parable. I get that Jesus voluntarily went to the cross rather than compromise what he stood for. I get that it had to happen. I get that the prophecies were fulfilled and Jesus needed to show us just how far he would go to show his love for us. I get that we learn by example that if we are truly followers of Christ, we should be willing to go that far ourselves and all that. And I'm good with it. But now that he is on the cross and things can't get worse for him, couldn't he show a hint of anger toward his attackers? I would take mild irritation at this point because those are responses I can relate to. I could understand if Jesus wanted to lash out at the people who were standing below him, playing games and gambling away his clothes in order to pass the time as they wait for him to die. I would feel okay if he called them a name or two or even managed to spit on them. He could still be my Jesus and get away with that. It would certainly make me feel better about the way I act when people have hurt me even when I'm fighting for what I believe is right, even when I expect people to be angry with me for standing up for my beliefs, even when I'm intentional in my actions to challenge those in power, and I know that their only recourse is to lash out at me. But in the end, I seldom find it in me to pray for them. They are wrong, after all. And while I might not be able to fight back, I might even be silent in my suffering. Praying for my attackers is not the first thing that comes to mind, at least not to ask God to forgive them. I might send up a quick, God, make them stop. God, smite them quick. (laughs) God, make them pay. But to ask God in the midst of my pain to forgive them? You know, I think she captures. She captures the incredulity, the astonishment that we all have if we really stop to consider what is going on here in this one simple line? The level of vulnerability that Jesus maintains when everything that he's going through is at least worth a pout, don't you think? Why is this so significant? Why am I making such a big deal about this? And the reason is because love requires vulnerability. Love requires vulnerability. If if we're in love... If we're in love, by definition, we're undefended, right? When we're in love, we are open. We are connected. In fact, being in love is the act of dropping all our defenses and letting someone actually in to ourselves. That's what feels so good. To have the boundaries dissolve, to have the line where we end and they begin just sort of disappear. And it's absolutely terrifying at the same time. But if we think of love as identification with the beloved, the oneness with the beloved, we're undefended. We are vulnerable at that moment. Now, in our fear, because it's so so terrifying to be that vulnerable at the same time, we try to maintain some defense, that's the dance that we do, you know, especially between people who are dating, you know, the dance, but perfect love means perfect vulnerability, perfect openness, perfect oneness. What Jesus is showing us here is perfect love, and it requires perfect vulnerability. And that's the meaning of the cross for me. The cross is a central symbol, the central event in Christianity, and if we don't understand what it means, what are we doing here? If we still believe that the central meaning of the cross is to appease an angry God with a blood sacrifice, then how are we getting away from that legalistic mindset? How are we getting away from the quid pro quo and the zero sum game and all those things that keep us shelved off, not able to enter the kingdom because we're not exceeding the righteousness of the scribes or the Pharisees? The meaning of the cross is the display of absolute perfect love in human form. This is what perfect love looks like in human form. It is the proof that it is actually possible to have perfect love in human form. Now, I don't know if some of you are thinking this already, but someone will bring it up eventually. But Jesus is God, right? And so he plays by different rules than the rest of us. And that's what we have thought for so long that we don't put ourselves in the same human category with Jesus And yet that is not the message of the New Testament. It's not the message of the Gospels, and it's not the message of the epistles either. The message there is that Jesus was a human in every way like us, without sin, but that doesn't mean that he didn't need to do the work in order to get to the point that he had the perfect vulnerability to be able to maintain into perfect love. And he tells us flat out, we can do the things that he is doing. Greater things than these. He is showing us what perfect love looks like in human form. That is our ideal. That is our goal. How many of us are actually going to get there in the span of our lives? That's another question. But it doesn't mean that we're not trying. It doesn't mean that we're not going for that. And understanding that vulnerability is the key the willingness to be hurtable, to get hurt. This is why Jesus held the love of the enemy as the highest love. I can imagine that Jesus, especially at that moment, didn't really like his executioners, really didn't like the people who were jeering and spitting upon him and spitting in, human, in Jewish Hebrew culture. That was the most horrible insult that you could imagine. I don't think he liked them, but he loved them by staying vulnerable, by staying open, by staying compassionate toward their situation, toward toward their stage of development that they were displaying at that moment. Now, how did he do this? Think about it. There are two parts to this prayer, right? The first part is forgive them, Father. Now, to pray for the well-being of a perpetrator, especially someone who is doing something to you at the moment, requires that you've already forgiven them in yourself, in your own heart. The outward prayer, just like any sacrament, we talk about it all the time, a sacrament is the outward expression of an inward transformation. The prayer is the same way. If we're going to pray for the well-being, for the forgiveness of the people who are perpetrating upon us, it's because there has already been an inward transformation in ourselves. We have already felt the forgiveness. We found and maintain a human connection in them. We may have lost it for a while, but we've found it again. Or we were able to maintain the connection, which allows a level of understanding of them, why they're doing what they're doing, which is the beginning of compassion, the beginning of forgiveness. Now you may say, now I pray in order to find the forgiveness, <laughs> right? Kind of a fake it till you make it sort of idea. all right? I'm praying with gritted teeth so that I'm hoping that I can get there. And that's fair enough. But I think in this situation, Jesus is showing such a deep level of understanding of the human condition, of the condition and the stage of these people, and the compassion for that condition. And that's all manifested in the second part of the prayer, that they don't know what they're doing. He knows that these people are incapable of anything more than they're doing right now. He knows that they believe that they are doing the right thing that they are justified in what they are doing because that's what they have been taught. He spent his years of ministry trying to unteach that to help his followers to unlearn that, but he realizes these people have not. In their culture, they're doing what is right. They're doing what is justified. They don't know what they're doing is in any way wrong. These two parts of the prayer work together. Jesus knew what he was doing. He was fully aware so that he could see the deep human connection even beneath the horror of the events that were being perpetrated upon him. Knowing what he was doing, being aware, made him aware that they were not aware, (laughs) which is the basis of forgiveness. If love is identification with with the beloved, then the identification, even with the enemy, seeing them as a fellow human being at a certain stage of development, is the beginning of the connection that we need for the forgiveness. Now the point is that Jesus' awareness, Jesus' ability to know what he was doing, made him free enough in the moment to forgive and to remain vulnerable open, compassionate, even in the most extreme circumstances. He was free enough. It's all about freedom. All about freedom. Take a look at what Jesus says in John 8, verses 31 and 32. He says, if you continue in my word, you will know the truth, and the truth will make you free. Famous verse, right? That should be one of our famous top verses here, right? It's a good one. If you continue in my word, you will know the truth and the truth will make you free. Breaking that down a little bit, the word, all right? In Greek, it's logos, sometimes pronounced logos, logos. In Aramaic, it's melta. In both those languages, both Greek and Aramaic, word is much more than just what we think of word when we think of word. The word here can be a whole story. The word here can be a whole treatise. The word here can be the reasoning for the story and for the treatise. We use words sometimes when we say, can I have a word to mean a full conversation? It can mean that as well. It's in that sense that Jesus says, if you continue in my word, what he means by word there is the full summation, the sum of all of his teaching and all of his works, because word, melta, Blagas can also mean the works that you do that come out of the reasoning and the understanding that you have. And so the word here, if you continue in everything that I am teaching, everything that I'm about, everything that I'm showing you, in other words, if you live as I live and love as I love, breathe as I breathe, experience as I experience, if you can enter into kingdom as I have entered into kingdom, then you are my disciples. I guess I forgot that part, didn't I? You are my disciples. Okay, so the word there, disciples, in Aramaic is talmid, or talmidim in plural. There's really no analog for a, a, a Talmud in our culture. A Talmud is someone who literally lets go of all of his or her identity in favor of the master, who does everything, follows them, eats with them, sleeps with them, does everything with them in order to imprint the master on themselves, to lose their identity in favor of the master's identity? Where do we see that in our culture? We are so individually organized and, 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 and motivated. We're trying to work exactly against that, to stand head and shoulders above everybody else and to impose our personality, our identity on those of others, but to voluntarily let ours go in favor of the master? I mean, the closest we can come, I think, is boot camp for the military. They take your hair, they take your clothes, they take everything of your civilian life and they re-imprint you with that of the, of the collective, of the group so that you can be a soldier, so that you can follow orders without question, so that you can function. Multiple things, functioning as one, right? If you continue in everything that I am doing, then you are my Talmidim. You are truly imprinting myself upon you. And you will know the truth, Shirata, in Aramaic. which can mean truth as we think of truth, but it also means a right and harmonious direction. It also means an openness to new possibilities that weren't even understood, really weren't on the horizon before. And what is that truth that Jesus is talking about that you will know if you continue in my way? He said everything is one, everything is connected. That all the diversity and all the differences and distinctions that we see and make and judge in this life, if you just go down a little deeper, you find that they all connect into one thing. That at the root of everything that is, there's just one thing. That truth will make you free. And the word free is really interesting. And we need to see this connection. Subkana in Aramaic it means both freedom and, guess what? Forgiveness. Subkana means freedom and forgiveness at the same time. They relate to the root, sabak, which means to forgive, to release, to allow. For something to go back to its original position is sabak. And they bring that down as words, as both freedom and forgiveness. To be set free is to be forgiven. To be forgiven is to be set free. Set free to do what? Set free to accept life on life's terms, the way it is presenting at the moment, not expecting it to be something different that makes you miserable, but accepting it even when it's bad. Accepting people and everything in life as it is, as they are, without trying to change them, without trying to exert your influence on them to make them more palatable to yourself. Now I'm anticipating an objection here. Forgiveness is not condoning the bad behavior of the perpetrator. Forgiveness is not excusing that behavior. It's important for us to make this distinction. Forgiveness actually has nothing to do with the other person at all. Otherwise if it it did, how do you forgive someone who's died? Have some of you had to forgive someone who has died? How do you do that if they're not there to apologize to you? Forgiveness has nothing to do with an apology extended or received. It's an interior process that you do all on your own. An interior state of freedom from the victimhood that was perpetrated upon you. To become free from the victimhood, to become free from the state of separation, to become free from the trauma, to become free from the compulsive behavior and thought patterns that have resulted because of what happened to you at the hands of another. To be free to finally be fully present again, to be vulnerable again, to be open again, even as you may have to press charges against them, right? Even as you fight for justice, it's an internal state where you are free from all of that at the same time that you do what is needed to be done in the group, in the relationship. So it's not condoning the behavior, excusing it or leaving it unpunished, but it is an internal transformation that changes your ability to do what needs to be done. But do it again as Jesus would do it in full vulnerability. Vulnerability even in compassion. Our Baptist friend puts it this way, and I thought she did a good job here too. They say that to forgive is the most freeing thing that you can do for yourself. That when you forgive someone, they no longer have power over you. That you can be free to move on, live your life without having your attacker control your life any longer. I believe that. I've been able to move on from many of my life's hurts and pains through forgiveness. But it's a process, and it usually happens well after the fact, because in the midst of pain, my wounds are too fresh to offer anything toward anyone, even myself. Yeah, it does take time. You probably heard that time heals all wounds. Not true. (laughs) You can stay wounded as long as you like. But healing does take time. But only if we do the work of healing, and only if we continue in Jesus' word, continue in his way, does healing actually take place. I was talking to an 18-year-old girl I'm doing some uh, just counseling with her, and she was telling me that she went back to visit her family and... Um, She has two grandfathers, one on her mother's side, one on her father's side, the usual arrangement. And she says both of them are really... Well, she said, one of them is really miserable, and the other one is just really annoying. And she was talking about how one of the grandfathers, they, they had to go someplace, and, and her mother was driving the car, and after they, they, they stopped and went someplace, or they came back, I can't remember, the, the grandfather looks and sees that the, the seat had been changed and hadn't been changed back to where it really originally was. Who did this? You know. And actually, it was the girl that did it, but her mother took the blame. <laughs> she says, I changed it, and he just laid into her just up one side and down the other and round and round over a seat that hadn't been moved. And she said that, you know, after dinner, when everybody is getting up and and cleaning up or whatever, he just sits in the chair and he observes. She says he misses nothing and he never misses a chance to criticize what wasn't done to exactly the specifications that he would have for that particular job. And it's like you walked on eggshells around him all the time because you never knew when you were just going to get blasted. He said, now, her other grandfather, he doesn't really say anything, doesn't really participate much, but he's just miserable all the time, makes it very difficult to be in his presence. You know, I was telling her, it's sad, but you have an absolute golden opportunity here. You have an object lesson right in front of you of how sad it is to get to a certain age and not have done the work, to remain unforgiven to still remain unfree, to get that old and still be in the throes of that kind of compulsive behavior, that kind of depression? What happened here? What went wrong? Now, armchair psychologizing is always you know, fraught with all sorts of peril, but I think what we can basically say is that both of these men, at the age that they are at, are living a life of unmet expectation. Their lives are not what they thought that they should be at this time. Either they didn't rise to the level of accomplishment, didn't make enough money, didn't marry the right person. Who knows what it could have been or is. But one of them reacts with angry and controlling behavior, and the other is just in passive despair. But these unmet expectations, the inability to accept life on life's terms and people as they are, to be free from all of that compulsive stuff. That's what it looks like when we don't do the work of healing, when we don't do the work of forgiveness, when we don't do the work of freedom. How do we do it? How do we do this work? We can't just decide we're going to be free. We can't just decide that we're going to forgive, you know, that we're just going to lay all this stuff down, will ourselves into this space. It doesn't work that way. It's a process. And that process has been outlined by me and so many others as the hero's journey, as a rite of passage, if we understand it, the full rite of passage of separation, transition, and reincorporation. This is the work. This is the shape of the journey. To begin with, we get hurt. It goes all the way back to childhood. As soon as we get hurt, as soon as our needs are not met, as soon as we are traumatized, abused in any way, we start building our defenses because we don't want to feel that way again and we need to survive, ultimately. And that's appropriate when you're in those kind of conditions, especially as a child who has no power whatsoever, always at the whim of the adults. What is a child supposed to do? Come up with some sort of defense, programs for happiness, programs for survival that create core beliefs, these unconscious beliefs and attitudes and thought patterns that are really driving the bus for us, and we don't even know what's happening. They're so deep under there. And they will continue to work on us. We will continue to work on them and through them until finally, maybe if the pain has to get high enough, there is a breakthrough, and we finally admit that we need help. We admit that we're powerless over-making these basic fundamental changes in our life because we can't get to them on our own. It's just like the first three steps of AA, right? To admit we're powerless, to come to believe that there's a power greater than ourselves that can and will return our lives to sanity, and to give ourselves over, to finally submit to something other than our own noodle, our own egoic mind. Those three steps form the basis of any fundamental transformation any real change in our lives has to come from that place. Jesus at that point says to us, are you willing to sell everything that you think you know? Are you willing to let go of everything that you're clinging to? These core beliefs that you don't even know are in operation, are you ready to let them come up to the surface so that you can let them go? Are you willing to be that radical, that ruthless in your own life that you can really sell everything that you have? Give it to the poor and come follow a different way. Are you ready to challenge your beliefs? Challenge everything that you think you know and submit to the help, submit to the instruction of somebody else other than you. And it's not just God we're talking about, unseen God. We're talking about our teachers, we're talking about our counselors, we're talking about our friends, we're talking about our family, we're talking about our therapists. Are you willing to listen to anybody Because at this point, you can't get out of this hole on your own, but you can hitch your wagon to a power greater than yourself that'll pull you out. Jesus says, sell everything, because that is the beginning of the building of your awareness of self, your self-awareness, to begin to actually know what you're doing and not have it just happen to you. And then wondering every smoking crater you're standing in, how you got there. But it's painful and it's frightening. This process of unlearning, this process of descent before the ascent, that Paschal mystery that Frank was talking about last week and we've talked about so much, are you willing to do that? And there are so few that do. What did Jesus say at Matthew 7? He said, go by the narrow gate. For the gate that leads to life is constricted, and the way is narrow, and few go by it. But the way to destruction is wide, and many go that way. And we think he's talking about heaven and hell. It has nothing to do with heaven and hell. It has to do with kingdom experience right here and right now. It has to do whether you're willing to do this work. Are you willing to go through the painful descent, the terror of letting go of everything that you think you know and everything that has sustained you to date, That is now your glass ceiling that is shelving you off. Are you willing to try to break through? Are you willing to let go? And, of course, the next stage, and concurrent with this, is to pray. But pray as Jesus prayed. How did Jesus pray? In silence, in solitude, in stillness, in simplicity. Those four S's that we've been talking about for weeks and months now. When Jesus teaches us to pray the Lord's Prayer, he tells us explicitly, don't stand out on the corner in the midst of all the noise and the distraction and and the grandiosity. Retreat into your closet, into silence, into solitude. Don't use a lot of words. Your Father knows what you need before you ask. In the simplicity of that, that kind of prayer is also continuing the process of dismantling our compulsions, of building the awareness of ourselves so that we can start to know what we're actually doing while we're doing it, which graduates us into mindfulness The awareness actually catches up to us in real time so that in our moments we can see what is going on. We can see we're being triggered emotionally. We can see what that normally causes us to do. We can open up the space between the stimulus and the response and we can make a different choice. And we can make that consistently over time, which is the healing that takes time. To consistently choose something other is creating the new normal creating the healing, creating the ability to live our lives in real connection, real relationship with people. It allows us to choose other than what that unconscious trigger or reaction was doing. Begin to uh, regulate our emotions, to choose what is best for everyone affected. We become free in our moments to first do no harm. Just like the Hippocratic Oath, right? First, do no harm. And second, to leave everyone and everything better than we found him, found it, found him, found her. And it doesn't happen all at once. Awareness, knowing what we're doing, that comes gradually. It comes in layers. It comes in fits and starts. It's two steps forward and a step back. You think you've really conquered something, and then it comes right back up again, and there you are. It almost becomes comical. And if you can see it in that humorous way, it helps, Believe me. But it doesn't happen all at once. And it doesn't happen in all aspects of life either. In fact, the way that we make these kinds of choices for connection, for oneness, are just one moment at a time. It doesn't happen for your life. It happens for one moment. This moment right now, to choose to lean in, to become part of, to choose for everyone that is right in front of you or not. Are you willing? Are you willing, this moment, to do something different, something that connects you in a way that you weren't connected before? And be aware of how you react to new things, things you're being asked to do. The analogy that I thought of is that sometimes, and usually it's Vernon over here, who will ask everyone, hey, you know, you can stand up and clap if you want to. You know, everybody's sitting on their hands as this song is pumping away. You can stand if you want to. Now, what happens when you say that to a group like this? Now, there's a few people whose names will be, no, Nina, <laughs> <laughs> Marion. They're already standing. They're already clapping. They're already dancing. And then as soon as, the <laughs> as, soon as Vernon says what he says, there's a few others that pop up like they're on springs, out of because they've just been waiting for the, you know, the the permission to get up there and do what they do. And then there's another group, and they kind of look around, you know, they look at each other, they smile, and then, okay, and they get up, and and then there's another group that waits until the whole group is standing, so they can kind of slide in and not be seen. And then there's a group that's going to sit, no matter what, you're not going to get them to stand, you know. Now, look, There is nothing wrong with sitting during worship, okay? And I know some of you like to sit and close your eyes and go into a meditative stance. That's not what I'm talking about here. But what I am talking about, is kind of like a sower in the seeds kind of thing, where Jesus throws all the seeds out and it hits all the different soils. And this is it. What kind of soil are you? When the seed hits you, are you the one who's gonna pop up on springs? Are you the one who is really going to embrace Move through any resistance that you feel and do something that you've never done before so you can experience something you've never experienced before. In that moment, just for the moment, doesn't mean the next moment is going to be the same, just for this moment right now. Will you do it right now? And then the next moment presents a new choice. Will you do it then? Maybe yes, maybe no. But the point is, is that you just keep putting pearls on your string with each moment that you pop up and you embrace the moment and you accept it as it is and you flow with it and you start to enjoy it and you realize this is the change that you have been looking for in this moment alone. But you get to a point, that magic 51%, where you realize you've changed your mailing address. You now live on the light side. And you just take trips to the dark side, right? But this is it, moment by moment, to get lost in the moment, to experience the truth that is the connection, that we are all one and we are all connected and we are all one people, to become more aware of where and why we are still defended, those strongholds, those places that are stubborn, to begin to know what you're really doing to focus on what offends you, where your resistance are so that you can choose other than that too. Where are those places? All of this is the first step to selling everything that we own, giving it away, and step into the freedom of the vulnerability that is the perfect love, that is the basis of kingdom, that is what Jesus is trying to get us to experience. Let's pray. Father, you have showered everything upon us. You haven't missed a square inch of our lives. There is not one drop that you have withheld. Everything that you are, everything that you have is already ours. You've already given it to us. That is a truth that will make us free. Free to be open and vulnerable Help us more and more to see you as you are, Lord, to let go of so many compacted beliefs that continue to take us in other directions, to keep us defended, to keep us walled off. Help us to become willing to lean into our moments, even if we are uncomfortable, even if we feel resistance, even if we are offended and find that even in the moments of those times of duress, we can still look and say, Father, forgive them. Forgive me. We just don't know what we're doing. That's it. Help us, Lord, moment by moment, day by day. Help us to look for and find the help that we need to be able to move forward when we're stuck. And help us to do all of this in prayerful connection with you. And never let us forget that we can only love because you loved us first. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's all stand.